Good morning. Happy to be with you this morning in this online format. Um, hopeful that we will be able to gather together again physically soon. Uh, we'll be talking together as, as church leadership sometime this week about when that will be. Um, as of now, we are hopeful that we will gather together next Sunday, but that could change. And so I will let everyone know what the situation is with that as soon as possible. Just to kind of give you an update on where things are, uh, we as a church have had 24 COVID cases in the last two weeks that we know about. Um, thankfully, we've not had any severe outcomes, but um, that's where things stand. Um, a good number of us have recovered, including my family. Uh, we are all feeling much better. We appreciate your prayers. Our quarantine is officially over. And so we are beyond COVID, uh, it, it would seem at this point. And so praying for the rest of our members who are still struggling with that, that they would reach that point soon as well. Um, please continue to pray for our church and pray for your leaders as we figure out how to navigate these waters. Um, and, and be sure as you pray to thank God for the, the fact that so many of our people have recovered from COVID at this point. Um, I've decided that I'm going to hold off on our first Peter series until we're able to gather together physically again. Uh, and so we'll, we'll return to first Peter once we get to that point. Um, this morning, I'm going to be preaching a message from Colossians chapter one entitled above all. Um, and, uh, I want to give you a little bit of background information about this passage. Um, so the Colossians, the Colossian church was being troubled by Gnostics. Uh, Gnostics were um, false teachers who claimed that they had special knowledge, that, that, that God had revealed to them something special and significant beyond the scriptures, beyond the teachings of the church and the apostles. Um, they have their own special knowledge that, that God had given them. Um, and the, the kind of the crux of what the Gnostics believed was that they believed that all physical things were sinful. Everything in the physical realm, everything you could touch or see or taste or smell, all of that was infected by sin, um, which is true. All of the, all, all physical things are impacted and affected by sin, but they would go a step beyond that to say that God could not have come in physical form or physically interact with creation because sin would rub off on God and thus would make God sinful. Um, and so, so the, the kind of natural end point of Gnostic teaching is that Jesus did not really come as God in the flesh. There was no hypostatic union um, that that Jesus took on human flesh. Um, and so, so that right there is a problem because without Christ coming in the flesh, salvation isn't possible. Um, also, there's some references in the book of Colossians that make it seem as though there was also some mysticism kind of intermingled in that. Um, there's references to things like angel worship and things like that. So, so you've probably got kind of this mixture of this Gnostic belief that everything physical is bad. And then on top of that, 
you should be worshiping everything spiritual, including angels. Uh, and so Epaphras, who was the pastor of this church, uh, went to to meet Paul. Uh, and Paul has had never been to Colossae, uh, where the, the Colossian church is located. And he goes to ask Paul for counsel on what he should do. And so Paul writes this letter um, to the church as a way of trying to help correct their false theology. And so our passage today, we're going to look at verses 15 through 23 of chapter 1. Paul is speaking specifically of Christ, and he is addressing the 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 supremacy of Jesus Christ, why Christ alone is worthy of our worship, not angels or anything else, that, that, that Jesus is himself the only worship, worshipable, if, I don't know if, if that's even a word, um, thing in all of creation. Um, and he's going to address the, the, the Gnostic side of things as well, by, by talking about Jesus as the image of the invisible God. Um, and so let's, let's look together at verses 15 through 23 of Colossians chapter 1. And it says this, He is the image of the invisible God, he being Jesus, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So the first thing we see here is we see Paul telling us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Um, we, we cannot see God. Uh, we we are, are physically incapable of seeing God in his natural state, as it were, um, because he is a spirit without a body. But he's not simply invisible like the invisible man is invisible. Um, we are literally unable to see him without perishing. We see this in places like Exodus 33, where it talks about you know, no man can look on God and live. And so, so he is invisible to us, not simply because of the fact that he has no body, but he is invisible to us because we cannot see him and then live. He is literally not visible to us in both of those ways. And so Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is a visible, something we can see, um, not really a representation, but he is the visible God. And so what this tells us is that 
it, it talk, talking about the image of God, Jesus bears the image of God in a special, unique way. All of us as humans bear the image of God, but Jesus has it in a special way. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 puts it like this. It says that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So you can kind of think of it like the sun. The, the sun in the sky is made up of hydrogen being turned into helium. It's nuclear fusion. And the light and the heat that we see are a result of that reaction. We, we cannot, with the naked eye, see hydrogen or see helium, but we can see the reaction that is caused. And so in a certain sense, Christ is kind of like that reaction, that radiance of God. He is the visible outflow of the invisible God. Um, and beyond that, uh, whereas we are made in God's image, we are created beings who have been given the image of God. Jesus is an exact imprint of God's nature. He is God himself. They're not so, so whereas we represent aspects of who God is, Jesus is God. Okay. When it talks about him being the exact imprint, that's what that means. It means that he literally is God. So, you know, if you go out to a restaurant and you really like Dr. Pepper and you say, you know, can I have a Dr. Pepper? And they say, well, we have Mr. Pibb. You might get Mr. Pibb, but it's still not Dr. Pepper. You know, we are we are Mr. Pibb. <laughs> Jesus is Dr. Pepper. Okay. Um, and so, so he is the image of the invisible God. And then Paul moves on to say that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. The firstborn of all creation. Now, don't hear this and misunderstand and, and think Jesus was born. Okay, Jesus was born in flesh, and so that's what we celebrate at Christmas, but but Jesus has eternally existed as the Son of God, um, and so don't don't make the, the heretical error of thinking that there was a point in time in which Jesus did not exist, and then he came into existence. That is not, that, that's not true. Jesus has always existed. Um, the Bible uses this, this phraseology, firstborn, um, in certain places as kind of a, a, a title of reverence or respect. Um, and so in Psalm, we see this in Psalm 89, 27, um, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. This is in reference to David. Um, David was not the first king of Israel. He was also not the firstborn in his own family, but God says, I will make him the firstborn. And so it's, it's a title that shows importance. And so God takes this, this title of firstborn and, and conveys it or bestows it upon David. And so in the same way, we can think of Jesus as being the firstborn. Um, and so we see here, that, that this is this is signifying for us that Jesus is higher than all things in creation. Uh, he he is he is above all things. That's that's what we're that's what is being conveyed here by telling us that he is the firstborn of all creation. That in all created in all of of the created universe, Christ is above it. 
Okay, so there is nothing that is higher than Jesus. And we know this because he is the firstborn of all creation. And Paul kind of fleshes this out over the course of the next couple of verses. Um, and so in verse 16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. John chapter 1 tells us, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. So here again, Paul kind of echoes that thought that we see in John's Gospel. And what, what that means is Jesus is of higher significance or higher importance or higher authority because he is the one who created all things. Jesus has to be higher than creation because Jesus is the one who created it. So in the same way that parents have authority over their children, Jesus has authority over creation because he made it. He existed before it. It was made through him, by him. And so he has authority over it. And not only that, but all things were created for him. So not only were they created by him and through him, but they were created for him. And uh, the Greek word there could also be translated as toward. So another way of thinking about this is that all things were created toward Jesus. So all things came from him in the beginning and all things are going toward him in reconciliation. And so this is very important because again, like I said earlier, the, the Gnostic false teaching says that God does not interact with the physical world in any way because the evil would rub off on him. But here is Christ who is fully God and he created all things and all things are being moved toward him because they are for him. And so what we need to make sure we understand is that our evil does not stain God. You know, you, you may have heard it said or preached or taught that, that, you know, our sin can't get into heaven because our sin would ruin heaven in some way. And that that's not the case. The reason why our sin does not coexist with God in that sense is because if we get too close to a holy and righteous God, we would be annihilated by his holiness due to our sin. And so we need to really understand that the we need to make sure that we don't hold to kind of this closet Gnosticism that we think, well, God, God can't bring me near because of my sin, because that would that would somehow stain him. Our evil does not stain God in any way. And so it's important for us to recognize kind of the, the set-apartness of Jesus here in that everything was made for him. And so he is above all things simply be, by nature of that authority, of, of his firstbornness, as it were. And Paul goes on in verse 17, he says, And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So 
not only is Jesus before all things, did he come first? Did he create everything? But, but it also tells us here that in, in him, all things hold together. Um, in doing some, some reading and, and preparation for this message, one of the things that I came across was that scientists don't really understand why atoms hold together. They, there's some sort of force there or, or a set of forces that hold the elements of atoms together, but they don't really understand what it is. And so they have three forces that they use to try to attempt to explain it. Uh, one is electromagnetic force, where they would say there's an electromagnetic force that kind of draws those things together. And then there's there's two more, and they're so poorly understood by scientists that their names are literally strong force and weak force. That's how That's how little they understand why it happens that atoms all hold together. But the scriptures tell us right here why all things hold together because Jesus is the one holding them together. Uh, you, you, you probably have sung, I believe we've sung it here at our church, um, the song, Lord, I need you. Um, and there's a line in that song that says, without you, I fall apart. And you, you, you may not have realized it, but that statement is literal without Christ. We would literally fall apart because he is the one holding all things together. And so if you go back again to Hebrews 1, 3, the, the, the next phrase in that verse that I read earlier, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. The very next phrase is, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So, so literally what we see is that Jesus is speaking all things into continued existence right now. He is upholding the universe by the word of his power. All things in him hold together. If Jesus was not God, everything grinds to a halt and comes apart at the seams. And that's something we have to recognize when we think about this Gnostic teaching was that either Jesus was fully God and not man, or Jesus was fully man and not God because those two things couldn't touch. And so here's Paul saying he has to be both. He has to be both. And this, this is a picture for us of why Christ is worthy of our worship and our devote, devotion and our commitment. What, what higher good can you find? What, what is more worthy out there for us to worship? You have Jesus who is literally the visible God, who is literally the exact imprint of God's nature, who is literally the most important thing in all of creation, that, that he is the one who created all things. He is the reason that all things were created. He is the one that all created things are moving toward because they belong to him. He is the one who is before all things, and he is the one who is holding all things together. So just here in verses 15 through 17 of Colossians 1, we have... Just what I would say is a, is a beautiful explanation of why we should devote ourselves to Jesus Christ because of who he is. And so Paul then goes from who Christ is to trying to make us understand that Christ is supreme in the church. 
He's supreme in the church. So he says in verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. So when he says here that he is the head of the body, the, the imagery that he is using, you know, the head is the decider, the direction giver, the leader, the, the mind, the one who is, is, is kind of steering all things. And so if we are, as a church, the body of Christ, Christ is our head. So we, we cannot exist or function as a church separate from the headship of Christ, just as a body cannot live when it is separated from its head. And so what we need to make sure that we understand as a church is that we function as the scriptures command us to function, not at, not in ways that we desire, not in ways that we think are best, not in ways that we have quote unquote always done it, but we need to be sure that our direction and function as the body of Christ is following after the head because Christ is the head. He is first. He is the highest authority within the church. He also tells us here that he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So just as he is the firstborn of all creation, Jesus is also the firstborn of the dead, the firstborn from the dead. And so this time it's his death that's in view. And Jesus does something that no one before him had ever done. He died and then he rose. He willed himself back to life again. No one else had ever done that. And so here is Christ doing something again that no one had ever done. He created all things. No being had ever done that. And here he is being the firstborn from the dead. And so what does it tell us? That in everything, he might be preeminent. So whether you are talking about creation or you are talking about redemption, whether you are talking about your, your birth and life or your reconciliation back to God, Christ is first in every single things. In everything, he is preeminent. He surpasses all others. There is none who has higher authority or higher worth or higher value than Jesus Christ. Because in all things he is preeminent because he is the firstborn of creation and he is the firstborn of the dead. And then it goes on in verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. There's something really significant about the word fullness here. Um, this, this word, this Greek word, uh, pleroma is the same word that the Gnostics used to describe all the divine emanations or lesser gods that stand between the holy, perfect God and sinful physical creation. So what, what they taught and what they believed was that God would kind of set up lower gods to protect himself or insulate himself from physical creation. So he is standing way above, and then there's these levels of God so that 
the sinfulness of physical creation wouldn't wake, make its way back up to him, essentially creating kind of a shield for himself. And so this word that they, they, they call that the pleroma or fullness. And Paul takes that word and he co-ops it. He takes their false teaching and he essentially slaps him in the face with it and says, wrong. Jesus is the fullness of God. So all of that level and layers that you were referencing, that you think God is using to separate himself, all of that is Christ. All of it. And not only that, not only did God not create these things to protect himself or insulate himself, it says that God is pleased with his fullness dwelling in Christ. So the fullness of God not only interacts with physical creation, but God was pleased to have his fullness dwell within physical creation. Other translations specifically point out that it dwells in Christ bodily, the holiness of God coming directly into contact with the sinfulness of the physical realm. And so Paul here in this verse completely dismantles the, the Gnostics belief system. He's, he says, look, he, Every aspect of this is wrong. And so what does, this, what does this mean for us? It means that when we worship Christ, we are not worshiping God Jr. Or, or God Light in some way. We are worshiping a Savior who is the fullness of God. He's not a distinct, different kind of God. He is God. There's nothing lesser about Jesus in any way. The fullness of God dwells in him. And then Paul goes from there into verse 20, and he says, And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And so the purpose of that fullness dwelling in Christ's body is to bring all things in creation back under submission to God. And so we see the, the creator coming into creation, the fullness of God being pleased to dwell bodily. And that is done in order to make peace with God by his blood. That's exactly what it's for. It's not just God doing something just because there's a very specific purpose here. And it is to reconcile all things back to God through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so this is what makes Christ supreme in the church. Apart from him, there is no body. There is no church. Apart from him, there is no resurrection because he's the firstborn from the dead. Apart from him, we don't have a connection with God because the fullness of God was pleased to dwell bodily in him. And apart from him, there is no reconciliation. There is no peace because it required him to come and him to die. And we needed this reconciliation because of what we see in verses 21 and following. What we see there is it says, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. So we, we are separated from God. We are naturally alienated from God because of our sin. We are born into sin. And so we are separated from him but apart from just beyond just being separated we are actively hostile toward god we 
actively fight against his lordship. We actively press against his preeminence, his supremacy, and say, no, I am God. I am God. And so we see this alienation and this hostility in the fact that our deeds are evil. We are doing evil deeds. And all of this can be seen in, in Psalm 14, 1 through 3. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. So this alienation, this hostility is so deeply rooted in us that there is nothing good in us apart from Christ. There is nothing in us that seeks after God, that tries to do what is right. It is only evil and hostile. It's only evil and hostile. And so that is what makes that reconciliation so incredible. It's because we are so undeserving. And so we see again the supremacy of Christ in that we are naturally opposed to him and he still came to save us. But everything about this reconciliation does not fit our understanding of what it should be or how we would do it. So first of all, it tells us in verse 22, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh in his body of flesh, for God to reconcile us, he literally came into sinful creation. He did not simply stand above creation and, and was seeking only to judge and ultimately punish and destroy it, even though he would have been justified to do so. He took on flesh and suffered for our sake. He did that intentionally to save us. And then he goes on, and so how would you bring life to those who have infinitely wronged you, those who completely deserve to suffer wrath? Would you willingly suffer and die for them to take the just wrath that they deserve and place it upon yourself? Because that's what God did in Christ. That's what God did in Christ. So he took on flesh, which makes no sense. He died for us which makes no sense. He, he brought us back to God, removing alienation and hostility, not by punishing us, but by dying in our place, by taking our punishment upon himself. And in doing that, he says, he says, you are reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So, Another way that this is way outside of our understanding is that Christ does this and we are given his holiness. Not only do we not suffer the wrath that we deserve, but instead of God simply saying, I fixed your problem, now go do better from here on out. We are made holy and blameless before him for all time. Our sins are gone. Because Christ has taken them from us. He has taken them for us. And in their place, we are given his perfect holiness. And so now the holiness of God does not annihilate us. The holiness of God draws us near. 
We are united together with him in reconciliation because of what Christ has done. And so again, a way that we see the supremacy of Christ is that the reconciliation that he brought is not what we would have done. It's not what our own sinful flesh would have ever said, this is what is right. And Christ is supreme because he did what was necessary that only he could have done. And so what is our response? How do we respond to this supremacy of Christ? Paul says in verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So we are called to continue in the faith. That's our response. To submit ourselves in faith to Christ and continue in that faith. That faith. That's the hope of the gospel. And Paul uses some words here to help us kind of get an image of that. He says, stable and steadfast, unshifting, not shifting from that hope. So what he's trying to convey here is that when the waves of false teaching come, when the pressures of life come, when the cares of the world come and press upon us and try to drive us away from seeing Christ as, as supreme over all things, we must be stable and steadfast, committed to the hope of the gospel. And the hope of the gospel is that Christ is who he says he is. That's the hope of the gospel, that, that God himself took on flesh, took on our sin, died in our place, and gave us holiness. That's the hope of the gospel. Our hope has to be rooted in the supremacy of Jesus Christ. I've thought a lot about this as I've wrestled with COVID, as I've dealt with this virus in my own body and in my family's bodies, and just having to recognize no matter what happens, Christ is supreme. No matter what happens, Christ is worthy of worship simply because of who he is. It does not matter if he does things the way that I want him to. What matters is that he is supreme and I submit myself to his lordship always. And so I pray for myself and for all of us as a church that we would continually submit ourselves to the lordship of Christ moment by moment. That we would remember that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And that our hearts, instead of being devastated when life does not go the way we want it to, or the way we hope it would, that our hearts would remain joyful and hopeful because of the glory and majesty of Jesus Christ. Let's submit together today to the supremacy of Christ in our lives and over all things. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful beyond measure for the goodness that you have shown us in Christ, for the grace that you have freely bestowed upon us in sending your perfect son to dwell among us, to take our sin and your wrath, to give us holiness. 
we pray, Father, that we would continue to be joyful in all things. We pray for our church as we have so many who are struggling with COVID. We pray, Father, that you would bring healing and peace. We pray, Father, that you, by your grace, would allow us to gather together again soon in person, that we would be able to praise Christ together. Help us, Lord, to submit gladly to his supremacy today and every day. And we pray this in his name and for his glory. Amen.